We're going to be looking in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 7. We've been looking at a series of messages out of the uh, New Testament book of 1 John, uh, where again and again John addresses himself to the little children, things that God's little children, regardless of how old we are, need to know. And tonight we're going to see how that little children need to know about the danger of deception. Verse 7, 1 John chapter 3. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. Little children, let no one deceive you. So tonight we understand that John has set the context of this passage describing the danger of deception. And immediately he's going to tell us what this deception is all about. It is uh, what is righteous, what is right and true and just, as opposed to what is sinful, what is wrong. What is good against what is evil? What's right against what is wrong? Let no one deceive you. You see, John knew that there would come a day, and in fact, he was living in it himself because this day has always been here. But he knew there would come a day when it would become especially prevalent. What Isaiah the prophet warned us about in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20 Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Immediately when we look at Isaiah's words, we see somewhat of an enigma. If, uh, if you have ever looked at a persimmon on a tree and thought, Man, that thing looks just right. And you reach up and grab it and take a bite. Mmm, I can feel that feeling right now. Bitter, bitter. You never have to worry about, now was that a sweet, ripe persimmon? Or did I get that one just a little bit too early? I mean, just like that, you know. You never get it confused. We, we never can uh, say, you know, I, I took a bite of something. Oh, that's sweet. Oh, that's bitter. It, we don't get them confused. But Isaiah tells us there'd come a day when somebody would feed you bitter and then convince you that that's sweet. Can you imagine? Uh, that's That's deception. Most of us, we we don't really wonder about whether we're in the light, whether the light's on, or whether we're in the dark. I mean, we know dark, and we know light. I know when I can see. I know when I can't see. I know how dangerous it is when you can't see after the grandkids have been by for a while. Amen? Uh, Those of you who have grandkids know what I'm talking about. I'm going to tell you something. There was a time when I probably liked Legos. But I have learned to despise Legos. 
After you've stepped on about 5,000 of those things, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Man, you can't get them picked up. And there you go, walking through the house, minding your own business. Ow, what was that? Oh, you got Legoed. I'm not sure if Legoed is a word or not, but it is now. We know the difference between light and darkness. But imagine, imagine a time of such deception when people would actually convince you that dark is light and light is dark. Uh, Now, as strange as those things are, we should find actually the first things that he talked about the most disturbing and most concerning. Because Isaiah warned of a day when people would call good evil and evil good. And folks would be convinced of that. That have hard, a hard time then knowing the difference between what is good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong, who's doing right, who's doing wrong. Well, that's the day we live in. I could spend a lot of time tonight just kind of commiserating the situation that we see developing in our nation and around the world. And I don't think it's really necessary for us to do that. Uh, I think you know, and and you see it, you hear it, that oftentimes some of the most despised, some of the most maligned people in the world are the people who try to live the way Jesus Christ taught us to live. And somehow in our culture, they're working very hard to convince Everybody that it's us Bible-believing folks that are all messed up. You know this. I don't think I have to spend a lot of time proving that point to you. It is happening right in front of our faces. And that's not all. But at the same time, we also see the people who are doing all the things God said don't do. They kill, they're violent, they steal, they lie. They commit all kinds of acts of violence. Those folk are defended. Their activities are promoted. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. How can such a deception go on? Well, we know who's behind it all. After all, Jesus told us that the devil is a liar. And he said in John chapter 8 and verse 44, he's the father of it. Uh, That great writer and philosopher Mark Twain was fond of saying that a lie can run around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. There's something about men that love a lie and there's something about it that gives it a life almost of itself. And it's hard, very difficult to stop a lie once it gets started going around. Part of the reason is because the devil is the father of lies. That means every lie ever told is one of his kids. He loves them. 
you start trying to beat out a lie and see what you find yourself up against. You better be ready to find out a, a, a real, up-close and personal definition of spiritual warfare because you're going to have it. The devil defends his lies. He does. He loves them. And his deceptions are very powerful. He's been playing people like a drum for generations. He knows how we tick. He knows what our weaknesses are. And by ours, I'm talking about humanity at large, mankind at large. He's the father of lies, Jesus said. John then gives us some careful instruction because God's children need to know the truth in this age of incredible deception. We need to know how to be able to tell against this incredible deception, against all of this pressure, against all of the cultural pressure, and all of the things we're seeing on the media that is determined to convince us and convince our kids that good is bad and bad is good. Right is wrong. Wrong is right. And if those who do right according to God, oh, they're all messed up. And the ones you really need to look at are the ones who are going their own way. Do it as they please. So John gives us in this very pivotal passage some information we need as God's children and And certainly our young need. In these turbulent times, I'm so thankful to be able to tell you tonight that the truth of God has has not changed a bit. Not a bit. God hadn't moved the standard. He didn't didn't go backwards. He hadn't gone forward. He hadn't raised the bar. He hadn't lowered the bar. It's the same place it's always been. The truth of God. So who can... Determine who is on the side. Long ago, Moses stood before the people of Israel and he cried out, Who is on the Lord's side? Who? Well, that's a good question for us tonight. How can you tell? So, well, little children need to know about this danger of deception. And the first thing that he's going to talk to us about in order to be able to recognize deception is that he wants us to see the the truth about sin. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him there is no sin. You remember the word outlaw? I'm not going to ask for a raise of hand. The chances are if you remember the word outlaw, you're kind of gray-headed like me or, or covering up your gray hair. You don't hear that word used very much anymore. He's just an outlaw. I used to hear it a lot. Not that they were saying that about me, but uh, (laughs) we did. They're an outlaw. Well, we don't use that term anymore. It might offend those poor uh, integrity challenge people. Call them an outlaw. They're, They're too sensible for that, too sensitive for that. We don't want to hurt their feelings. Well, you know, the the word outlaw actually has its etymology, traces its origin 
to the passage that tells us that those who sin are without law. Without the law. They're lawless. They're outlaws. Without law. God has established certain laws. He did it in the foundation and the creation of the universe. There were certain physical laws that were put in place. I I don't have to go into all of them, but if there is a law and it is true, you and I learned, most of us did in science, that there are certain things that are scientific laws, and if those things are true and proven to be true, guess who wrote the law? God did. Talk about the law of gravity. Who put that in place? God did. God did. Be real thankful for the law of gravity. Right now, all of y'all be banging your head on the ceiling, wondering how in the world it's going to get down. The law of gravity is a good thing. You don't break the law of gravity. You try, and it's going to break you. That's what's going to happen. Law of gravity. God put many other things, the law of thermodynamics, many other things that God has put in place that are operating principles for this universe. Laws, physical laws. God also put laws in place uh, that are moral laws. A summary of those were given in the Old Testament that are called the Ten Commandments, and every one of them, by the way, are reiterated in the New Testament. It was wrong to lie in the Old Testament. Guess what? It was wrong to lie before the Ten Commandments were written. It was wrong to commit murder. Guess what? It was wrong to commit murder before they were written. But they were written down, codified, put down for us so there'd be no mistake. Ten commandments. Don't do this. Do this. God told us. These moral laws, in a sense, are not broken. They break people who break them. We don't break the Ten Commandments. Uh, We're broken on them. We talked about that this morning. Not going to talk about it a lot tonight, but... uh, This is simply a definition. Uh, He who commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is the transgression of the law. Why did God give us these moral laws? Wouldn't we be better off without them? Isn't God some cruel, vengeful deity? Wouldn't it be some act of terrible cruelty to put down these things? Laws are for our welfare. Just like the law of gravity keeps us on terra firma so we don't go crashing out into space, uh, so also God's moral laws help to keep us in check. If God says... Thou shalt not. He says that for our benefit because what God is really telling us is don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself and other people. If God tells us to do something, then God is saying, help yourself. Go ahead. If He tells us to do it, then go ahead. You're going to enjoy this. This is going to help you. It'll make your life better. It'll make you a better person. Don't do these things because they'll hurt you. Do these things. They'll make your life better. God made these laws for us. But sin is a transgression of the law. And when we transgress sin, we break God's law. There's an Old Testament quote in the book of Judges. It's found four times. If you want to look at a reference, you can jot it down real quick. Judges 21 and 25. I don't have it up here in our PowerPoint tonight. just wanted to refer to it because there's four passages, four times 
This is said in the book of Judges. In that time, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Four times. No king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Imagine a world with no law and no law enforcement where everybody did whatever they wanted with no fear of retribution. Everybody did whatever they wanted to do. Do you want to live in that world? I don't. But can you imagine right here in the United States of America, there are people who are trying to convince us that that would be a better world. Right now, the restraining power of law and order is being taken away. And again, I, I could belabor this point. I'm trying to avoid belaboring the point or trying to go over what we've all seen. But I just get this image right now that I have seen again and again and again over the last few weeks of a railroad uh, yard in Los Angeles, California that has, is littered with open boxes and, and stuff because people are going in this train yard and breaking into the trains and stealing boxes and packages just in mass. And nobody's trying to stop them. Even the governor of California went down and toured it just this last week. I don't know what he did that for. Let me go down here and look at this in person. You know what? It looked the same way it did in the pictures. What's it look like? It looks like a bunch of people who are living without any kind of restraint. And they think they can do whatever. They can steal, take whatever they want. At that time, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Woe to him that call evil good and good evil. You see, God wants us to see, and he puts it down for us very plainly in this passage. There is something in the heart of humanity that is bent toward lawlessness, and lawless behavior is not good. Sin is the practice of lawlessness. And that person who is practicing lawlessness then, John says, is a sinner. It don't matter if he's in the train yard looting on Saturday night and in the church house sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. Doesn't matter. John's not impressed by all that kind of stuff. There is no universe, no way under God's universe, under God's economy, there is no way then that we can look at the practice of lawlessness and call it good. So that's the first thing that he tells us. We just need to notice the truth and, and stick with the truth. This is how you recognize deception. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be caught up in this. Don't be fooled. He who practices sin is lawless. 
You see that lawless behavior, recognize it for what it is. It's sinful, it's bad, it's evil, it's wrong. He contrasts that then with the truth about sonship. Whoever abides in Him, that is in Jesus Christ, does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as He is righteous. So He gives us then the standard for righteousness, and it should not surprise us that God's standard for righteousness is Jesus Christ. Amen. He tells us right up front, in Him is no sin. Uh, Jesus is, 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 is what? What kind of guy is Jesus? Is? Jesus is a no-sin kind of guy. That's what he was. He was fully man, fully God, and him is no sin. And so Jesus becomes to us the gold standard of human behavior. How can I tell what is right? Well, number one, I can tell that Jesus Christ is right. Because in him is no sin at all. And so if John is pointing out to us in this age of deception that that person who lives a life and a lifestyle of lawlessness, if he says then that person is sinful and evil and of the devil, then he does say all those things. They're not saved. They're living a lifestyle of lawlessness. They may claim to believe in God. Some do. Most don't. Most will tell you real quickly. They're living a life of lawlessness that they don't believe in God. Don't want anything to do with your God. Don't want anything to do with your Jesus. Living a life of lawlessness. But those who are on the other side, how do we know? How do we know? Those who are right then are those who are like Jesus Christ. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as He is righteous. So right up front then, in our age of deception, and in John's age of deception, he he nails down a point. He establishes this. He puts this down as a foundational principle. If you're doing what Jesus did, if you're living like Jesus lived, if you have Christ living in you, and you are living in Him, then you are on the side of truth and right. No matter how many people tell you, <laughs> try to tell you that you're wrong, no matter how many times somebody calls you a hater, no matter how many times they try to call you a bigot, well, you're just one of those old terrible Bible-thumping, Bible-believing Christians. Don't you buy into it. Jesus Christ is the standard for what is right. And if we are living as He did, if we are living in righteousness, then we are on the right side. It is out of this that we get this concept of family resemblance. Y'all have met my dad a few times, and uh, uh, dad's uh, getting on up in years now. He's past, his, he's past 90 uh, but, you know, memory is kind of funny because I remember Dad best as he was years ago. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, when I think of Dad, when I'm talking to him on the phone, if I don't see him, I, I, I'm, I'm seeing him not, I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing him in my mind as he was you know, 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're following me. When he's about my age. 
That's why it's so funny when I, when I go up, and one time we ate at a Chinese restaurant. I can't remember if it was in Cabot or somewhere else, but they had a big mirror behind the cash register. And we walked up to pay, and I turned around and looked at Nancy, and I caught something out of the corner of my eye. And I was looking in the, I saw myself in the mirror, and just for a flash, I thought, Dad's here. <laughs> my goodness, I, I look a lot like my dad. And the more gray I get, and the more round my face gets, uh, the more like him I look. You see me and my, you see my dad, and you'll see the family resemblance. You know what I'm talking about. Folks, if you're a child of heaven's king, you'll have a family resemblance. It's not going to be necessarily in your facial features. It'll be in your life and in your heart. There is a resemblance in you because Christ is in you, because you've been born again, because you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Therefore, John tells us, if you're abiding in Him, you don't sin and whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now people read that and they get the wrong idea. And it's, a lot of that is just due to the translation between Greek and in English. I'm not a Greek scholar. But I do know what a present progressive is in Greek. And it, it, it actually refers to something that is ongoing action or continuing action. And what John was talking about in this passage is a direct contrast of what he was talking about in the other passage. Those who are practicing lawlessness, who have that lifestyle of lawlessness, you know that they're wrong. You know that they're not right. There's no situation that you can look at that lawless lifestyle and say that that is good or right. In the same way, John tells us there's a difference for those who are born of God, who are the children of God. And it's created by our family resemblance to our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our Father. Jesus Christ is our Savior. Jesus lives in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, then, we don't end up living that lifestyle of sin. Now, the reason why we know that that's what John is talking about in this passage is because a very simple principle. The Word of God doesn't contradict itself. And if you look back in, in 1 John chapter 1 and again in chapter 2, you know, he was pretty plain. He said, a man that says he has not sinned is what? A liar. So we know that John is not teaching in this passage that we're going to attain some level of sinless perfection. He said, my little children, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, these things I write unto you that you sin not. And if there wasn't that potential of sinning and the, and the fact of our sinfulness, then he wouldn't have said that. He's not turning around here now in chapter 3 and completely shifting gears and going into a whole different what train of thought? He, he's not doing that. And because since he's not talking about some state of sinless perfection, then we have to understand it within that context. The context is I've outlined for you tonight. There are those who practice lawlessness. And then there are those who practice righteousness. A person who is lawless might occasionally do some good, but that's not, that's not, what he is. person who practices lawlessness. He might be a Robin Hood. He might occasionally give some money to the poor, you know, while he lives his lawless life. That doesn't mean he's any less lawless. 
In the same way, that person who practices righteousness may occasionally and will occasionally may struggle in sin, may have areas in our life where we struggle even again and again and again. And John is not trying to convince us that if that's true, then we've never been born again. I say that to you tonight because I remember a few years ago there was a popular evangelist traveling around all over the country, mainly in Baptist churches, but he wasn't uh, too picky. He'd go about anywhere. But one of the hallmarks of his ministry was that after he left there, they would baptize three or 400 people. Uh, the strange thing was, as all church members, uh, and he'd hang out in this passage and a few others, and by the time he was done, he had everybody, and sometimes even the pastor, even the deacons, all the Sunday school teachers, had them all convinced that they were lost. Uh, by the way, that guy ended up running off with another woman. I, I wonder if he ended up lost. Um, I don't, I'm not going to be that kind of person. That's not my goal here tonight is to convince you all that you're lost. That's not what this passage is about. In fact, the whole book of 1 John is written so that we can know that we have eternal life. He's not trying to convince saved people that they're lost. He wants you to have the assurance of your salvation. Just like that lawless person who may occasionally do something good, but it doesn't change him from being lawless. So the righteous person will be known as a person who does righteousness. That's our lifestyle. Uh, it's not to say we, we may not ever break one of the commandments. Uh, we, we probably do. We don't do it with impunity. We don't do it without conviction. We don't do it without a feeling of guilt. And we don't do it without a desire to make it right. John has already said it so plainly for us. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Why? Because when we're walking in the light, we can see our sin. We recognize our sin for what it is. We know that it grieves the heart of our Savior. And so he talks to us about the truth about sin, but he also sets that then against the truth of our sonship so that we understand that we are the sons of God. Why? Because we practice righteousness and we do not continually practice sin. We're not a lawless people. We're not a bunch of outlaws. We're not. And so John has just made it pretty plain for us. When you see somebody that's an outlaw, you can say, well, that person's a sinner. He's, he's, he's not been saved. You see that person then who's living righteous. What is it? Well, yeah, that person's good. It doesn't matter how many times people call the outlaws good or how many times people call the righteous evil. Jesus Christ is the one who sets a standard. If you're like him, you're on solid ground. And then he talks about the truth about salvation. He who sins is of the devil. But the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. 
In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for the seed of God remains in him. That is the truth of Jesus Christ. Where the Spirit gives testimony with our spirit that we are the children of God. Where Christ is in you and in me, the hope of glory. Where that spiritual side of us, that which has been born of God, that does not commit sin, and it can't commit sin because it has been born of God. Your spirit has been indwelled, endued with the imputed righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. It doesn't sin. How the flesh does. But that part of us that has been born of God remains born of God. And then it comes out into our practice. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. See, John brings up this whole issue of behavior. And all he's doing is reminding us of what Jesus himself taught us by their fruits. You shall know them. You'll know them by their fruits. In both John in verse 8 and verse 9, John calls us to the ongoing dominant practices of a person's life. There are those who sin and they love sin. They cheat and they love cheating. They're violent and they love violence. They hate and they love hatred. They steal. They love stealing. They commit all kinds of immorality. They love it. But then there are those who are born of God. Though they may occasionally fail, I think we could all say amen to that. Yes, yes, we failed. And John has already covered that in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But what it does mean is that we, as a general rule, will be righteous people and not outlaws. How does this happen? Well, he talks about that new dynamic, first of all. He said his seed remains in him. Once you see that word remain, his seed remains in him. You see there, that part of us spiritually, that spiritual side of us has received the new birth. We've been born again, not of corruptible seed, Simon Peter said, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And that seed is in you and that seed is in me. And thank God it is in corruptible incorruptible that seed then John says remains in us and it's never going to be corrupted it's never going to be taken away there is a part of us that is saved that is covered with the righteousness of God he has taken all our sin and put it on Jesus Christ and he took all his righteousness and put it on us that is where we are spiritually Now, we're still waiting for something, though. And what is that? Well, Paul told us what that was in Romans chapter 8. We're waiting for the redemption of the body. And in fact, the whole creation is groaning and travailing, he says in Romans 8, like a woman giving birth to a child. And the whole creation is experiencing that pain. What are they waiting for? Waiting for the redemption of the children of God. 
There will come a time when we'll no longer be burdened by having a, a, a sinless spirit and a sinful body. There will come a time when we'll no longer be pulled in two different directions. Where we're having to, uh, with the mind and the heart, we're serving then the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. We're not going to have that struggle anymore. Because we'll have a new body that will not be stained by sin No longer carrying the stench of of decay and the corruption that sin brings. But that's not yet. That is not yet. And instead, they have though this new dynamic. It is operating in us. His seed remains in Him. And it is not the flesh and it's not sin that's going to give the victory because Jesus Christ has already given us the victory through our faith in Him. We have a new dynamic. His seed remains in us. We have a new desire. He cannot sin because He has been born of God. John tells us that we can't live that kind of life anymore as a people of God. We can't. Because there is a new desire in us. I hear it all the time. Well, if I believe in the eternal security of the believer, will I just sin all I want to? I'd just live any way I wanted to. And I always respond the same way. For the most part, I do live the way I want to. You can just ask my wife. If I want to do something, I pretty well do it. Uh, Not always. But for the most part. Uh... We could put it this way. You know, I've stolen all the money I wanted to steal this last week. (laughs) I did. I'm not bragging when I say I didn't steal a bit. I I just, I didn't. You can put that on a whole lot of other sins. You see, we have a new desire. And we we can't sin. We we just can't. Not to say that we won't mess up occasionally, but we're not going to hang out there. Brother Jason Goodwin's uncle, Paul Goodwin, who taught me in seminary, was fond of saying, you know, you cannot keep a bird from landing on your head, but you can keep it from building a nest there. That was his way of telling us that we might occasionally have a bad thought, but we don't have to let that thing nest on us. We don't have to settle down in sinful behavior. And we don't as a people of God. When we try, we're miserable. The most miserable person in Cabot tonight is not a person who does not know Jesus Christ. The most miserable person in Cabot, Arkansas tonight is the person who knows Jesus Christ and is trying to live in sin. And he or she is miserable. And there's not enough medication in all the world to take that misery away. John says it very plainly. You've got a new desire. You can't sin because you've been born of God. And because of there, that's this new dynamic, God's seed remains in you. A new desire then because you can't sin because you've been born of God. There's also then this new display. The children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Don't be deceived. John says, a day of deception, little children, don't be deceived. You look around and you can see who is of God and who's of the devil. Who's on the Lord's side and who's not. 
Look around and see who is good and who is bad. Look around. You can see it. That person who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is he who does not love his brother. Therefore, as we see all over the Bible, John brings it down to these two points. Uh, We can tell by the attitude, by the way a person deals with God. And the attitude, the way a person deals with one another, other people, we can tell. By his vertical relationship, by his horizontal relationship, by the way he loves God and the way he loves people. The way she loves God, the way she loves people. If a person is on the wrong side of that, they're not good. Woe to them who call good evil and evil good. Little children need to know the difference. Regardless of how old we are, all of us in this building tonight, not many of us are young, but all of us need to know, and you young ones, you really need to know. We hear a lot these days about Nazis, about fascism, fascists. You watch the news or listen to the news, you'll you'll hear them talk about Fascism, a whole lot. Nazism, a whole lot. Uh, I wasn't alive during the World War II era. Not many of us here tonight were. Some were, but not many. Uh, but I, I do, I, I studied history enough when it was still history that I know who Adolf Hitler was. I know what he did. I know how he did it. It took him about 12 years, by the way, study history. It took him about a decade. Just long enough to raise up a generation. The Hitler youth. To raise up a generation that believed genocide was okay. Mass murder, okay. That believed this man when he told him he was ushering in a thousand year reign, the Third Reich thousand year reign that believed that killing all the Jews would make the world a better place. (laughs) Took him about 12 years. You see where the battleground is? Woe to them who call good evil and who call evil good. Who convince a generation of young people that What is right is actually wrong. What is wrong is actually right. That taste you're tasting, mm, mm, oh, that's sweet. It's not bitter. And that darkness that you're feeling your way around in, oh, that's not dark. This is really the way the world needs to be. When you're in the darkness, that's when you have real illumination. Day of deception. My little children, do not be deceived. Let's stand together, please.